Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? My name is Eric, and here for a provocative double feature is Michael Kester. Michael, how are you? Hi, I'm here. I'm ready to talk about Belladonna of Sadness and uh, the recent um, reimagining of Suspiria. The 2018 Suspiria. Mm-hmm. The, it's weird. Anything next to Belladonna is kind of, I mean, Belladonna is a very provocative movie, but you know, you put Suspiria next to it. Suspiria is a remake of one of the most adored horror films of all time and, or, you know, reimagining or what the fuck ever. It shares a name and, and little else. Sure. With the fucking film Suspiria. Sure. And, you know, we put it, I mean, you could speak a little to your idea here, but I also wanted to tease a brand new secret key to understanding cinema that we've somehow oh, yeah. never talked about on the show. You already told me about this. I thought you were about to surprise me. No, it's um, <laughs> it's a thing I wanted to fly by you because it's kind of, this is one of those things similar to uh, how we started talking about log lines where once you have an understanding of this, you could use it to look at all films right, forever into eternity, all of them. Mm-hmm. And to, even to make films. Right. And uh, and it's good for an eye roll at a party. It's great for an eye roll. <laughs> and um, this thing I'm talking about is the mise-en-scene, or uh, what we could just pronounce in mumbly English as mise-en-scene, if you'd prefer. Mm-hmm. You know, we're having our um, homage, homage, uh, kind of. And I'm always, I'm always of the club that's just like, call it homage, it's fine. Just throw around whatever you want, mise-en-scene, you know, what are you going to do? So yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit with Suspiria, but really I wanted to ask you why Suspiria 2018 with Belladonna of Sadness, or really why Suspiria 2018 on our show when we've already covered the original Suspiria. One of the things that I think back of with Suspiria and I can honestly say, probably now pairing it with Belladonna, I feel the same way. But I remember calling you shortly after watching that movie. Mm-hmm. And we both, you know, we talk about movies quite often that we've seen. And we both kind of went, huh, hmm. And that was really, the, that was the gist of the whole conversation. There's just some, there's some, uniqueness some je ne sais pas about sure uh, sure yeah or je ne sais quoi i'm sorry i've already ruined it i've ruined france i mean it could je ne sais pas is i don't know right je ne sais right. quoi is the i don't know what don't, yeah yeah but yeah i mean it's funny mise en scene is literally kind of a we could think about it for our show's purposes as a tool to sort of get to the bottom of well what is the i don't know what right exactly and i think that i think that um the I don't know is that's Belladonna of Sadness and Suspiria <laughs> 2018 is I don't know what. There's but there's pieces of this and and ultimately um, I think that you know going back to the fundament of double feature 
on Double Feature, we love to talk about why movies are notable. Mm. And I think that the crux of this evening, I assume you're listening in the evening. Please be listening in the evening or tonight. The crux of tonight's conversation is why are these two films notable? Two films that that on the surface may not be, you know. Mm-hmm. Suspiria, like you mentioned, being, you know, the remake, reimagining, rebirth of one of the most notoriously famous movies, Argento movies, Giallo movies of all time. Well, and specifically among people who think about horror movies, mm-hmm. who talk about horror movies, you know, it's a deep fandom movie. So people who carry the torch for the genre and for these movies really love original Suspiria and the entire notion of making it could have been seen as blasphemous when it right. was announced. Sure. And then I think with Belladonna of Sadness, there's just a general... I mean, I think I, I can see my a younger version of myself watching Belladonna of Sadness in a mocking way, being like, check out this crazy bullshit, you know? Yeah, well, I wanted to evangelize the, you know, the artistic credibility of Suspiria 2018. And so I sort of felt like it antagonizes people a little bit. Like, what better way to go this has serious artistic merit than to stick it in the gallery next to Belladonna Sadness. Like it's a, mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a trolling move, you know? <laughs> and so with that, we have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash double feature, but I'm going to eat up a bunch of uh, time doing a weird exercise on French nonsense with you. So uh, why not just trust people to support the Patreon because without your support... The show vanishes, and then who will roll their eyes? Who? So there is, um, you know, there's so much I could say about Suspiria, but I wanted to talk about the part that was most personal to me, which is the way that this movie feels and the part of the movie that I can't quite put my finger on. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and there's there's a lot to talk about with this movie. There's like the whole German autumn. There is um, sort of the the time and place and the themes and dance and witchcraft and you know a million million different things that I'm sure long articles have been written about. But what kind of killed me is, you know, I've talked about it on the show before. Like both of us really came up during digital films mm-hmm. and. Film itself, not movies, but film, 35 millimeter, 60 millimeter film was an enigma to be chased. Like when you saw the early digital films, no one could figure it out. You remember like the 2000s era, or I don't really know when the, when the early ones would be, but like the Clone Wars kind of era of... Mm-hmm. digital film like they barely looked like mo- they're almost embarrassing right. in a way they barely look like movies mm-hmm. and even masters of the craft directors who've made a hundred films you know p- anybody dabbling in digital looked like they were doing home movie recreational hobby stuff and you compare that to now today I could explain in five minutes or something how to get 95% of the look of film you know, our digital has gotten so close to film. And that 5% that isn't there is so elusive. And I think about that last 5% so much 
Because as I chased that feeling that I really loved, digital kept evolving and I would chase it and chase it and try to figure out how to make digital look filmic. And while I was chasing it and digital was getting better, films stopped having the very feeling I loved. Mm -hmm. You know, like modern cinema, movie shot digitally and movie shot on film both kept evolving. And the fewer and fewer movies that are shot on film today don't have this mysterious whatever this is. Right. The the how do you say it? The what could it be of uh mm-hmm. of the some of the like Rosemary's Baby era horror films. Well, yeah, but I mean I think that part of that is one I would hesitate to say that any first of all you add, you double the millimeters, that kills a lot of the love, you know. <laughs> Um, you, you give me, uh, 70 millimeters. So that, that definitely, uh, diminishes the amount of character, uh, your cells can have. Um, but also like I would be hard pressed to, to look at, you know, those two douchey giants of cinema whom I love, who are swear by film. And I bet you that they shoot that shit on film and then digitally transfer it because it's too hard to edit Oh yeah, well, well, that's part of what's um, what's tough, and maybe we'll talk about this a couple episodes from now. But the uh, uh, we have a Technicolor kind of involved show coming up. Mm-hmm. But you know, a lot of the processes for making film, physical film, have gone by the wayside, and in fact, even a lot of the film stocks people used to use are gone. So I started thinking, even the Tarantino movies, the Nolan movies, these guys who are famous for demanding, you know, to shoot on film. Modern movies shot on film stopped looking like the films that I love. And now the look and feel of the films I love is completely gone from, you know, people. I started thinking, not only are they not made today, but they cannot be made today, no matter how hard you try. Mm-hmm. Until I saw this trailer come out. And immediately, I was like, what is this? I need to stop everything I'm doing. What is the secret of this film? I need to harvest everything. And so, I don't know. The the thing that I was really anxious to talk to you about is I've now gone on this sub-obsession, finding out every little thing about this movie and really like watching it over and over. And, you know, I basically, I've obsessed over this movie and chasing this. And I wanted to get your fresh eyes before I tainted your own perspective with my weird sub-obsession. Uh-huh. Do you remember like when you first saw this trailer or if I had to just like ask you before we really thought about it, why does this feel like Berlin 1977 horror movie? I think with, with anything like this, it's, you know, there's the psychology of what did that actually look like? Like, what did Rosemary's Baby actually look like? Or in this case, what did Suspiria actually look like? And then, you know, I would say that the, I think that the, the interesting difference between when the original, I don't want to say the original Suspiria because I don't really want to compare these two movies. I don't think it's important to this conversation. So let's say Rosemary's Baby. But think about, you know what I thought about is like, or to look at something more European, you know, I was thinking European art house horror. I was thinking like Possession. Sure. You know, I was thinking about the movies that came out that it was the 70s, but it was also a little bit the 80s too. And it was especially European stuff. Right. Yeah, and I just feel like I feel like it it emulates a lot of that in a real way. 
But, you know, I don't actually think, I think that it has way more to do with, I think it has less to do with the medium on which the film was shot and more to do with the attention paid to um, how humans behaved in in a very broad sense at the time. You know how when you listen to um, old-timey radio broadcasts, Mm, and as and, I often do, as I think we're making right now. Yeah, they have that certain vernacular. Uh-huh. It's not quite like a colloquial English, and it almost has sort of this British curvature to it, but it's like very distinctly like radio American. Mm-hmm. It was a taught dialect so that people could speak in sort of a cadence that combated the inefficiency of AM broadcast, right? Because AM broadcast crushed a lot of your high ends. You lost all your low ends. So you were taught to speak in a way where words sounded the same and all your vowels were broader and your, your consonants were way sharper. And so while that was just born out of necessity, there's a point to this, I swear. While that was born out of necessity for that medium much like how shooting on film made movies from the 60s and 70s look a certain type of way, people then associate that with a time and place. And it's easier to go, okay, so how do whenever, now whenever you want to do any old timey person for anything, they adopt that radio vernacular, even though that wasn't sure. the contemporary dialect of every person, but every person from the 1920s can fuck off and die. And most of them have because they didn't record themselves. And the people who did all talked a certain way. And so now history was written by those weird people who talked funny. So you, you've actually gotten to the first area, I think of when, you know, when I think of mise-en-scene, this is, um, what I think it would be interesting to do is maybe just kind of go through the different pieces of this, and then we could see how it applies to Suspiria and see if we could shake a little of this loose. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a cahier de cinema term. It's, a, uh, it's, it's from the critic world. Strictly speaking, you would probably, you'd never use this on a normal set, and it's not quite as inclusive as all of the things that I kind of want to talk about. But I mean... I work in a lot of like art fuck movies. Mm-hmm. So when nobody's listening to us, we all use it all the time as kind of the way to go like, all right, but how do we like make it feel like this? Mm-hmm. And so the real like pretentious European people I work with use it a lot. And that's kind of what started to give me an affinity for this. But I think you'd properly define it as trying to create a, a space or a context for the audience. So it's this, um, I think, amalgam, if I could steal a word you use a lot, an <laughs> amalgam of pieces or uh, a recipe of things that you do in a movie to create a kind of 3D space or, you know, the way I think of it is the primary concept for creating immersion in film. Right, So we talk a lot, especially in the last couple of years, about log lines, about what happens in the movie, about movies as they exist on paper. 
But we also sometimes talk about a movie that might read stupid on paper and then somehow it's a miracle when you watch it and it's like, you know, sure, good. Or and it's feels, like a movie about a tire. Right, totally, totally. Or it's funny when it's not funny when you read it. So I think of the mise-en-scene as, as doing a lot of that work. It's creating that immersive environment and how do you do that? So this comes from theater and in theater, the primary pieces of this were, as you mentioned, the actors, the location, the lighting and uh, costumes, and then, you know, the hair and makeup and uh, kind of the props, things you would have in a theater environment, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you use that term to talk about film, you add a couple concepts on top of that that help craft the world, but it's not just world building, help craft the entire environment and make you feel like you're in a place. And that would be, you know, the way you block a shot, the kind of like composition and depth or the things you do with the camera, basically. And I would even extrapolate this out a little bit to the medium itself and kind of like where the audience watches it or because I think a lot of that plays into it as well. So sort of setting the scene within the movie and then kind of um, how the audience comes to the movie too. So I don't know, I'll hit you with some of these. You've, you've talked about the actor a little bit, so let's kind of like start with that. There is a delivery, which I thought was, mm -hmm. I didn't even necessarily think about. I think a lot about the way the actors kind of look or, you know, you have like a lot of European sort of model kind of faces in this. Well, yeah, you have one three times, but yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, even like, even something like a name mm -hmm. kind of tells it. Like when we hear Tilda Swinton, we go, oh, art house movie. You know, and that's not always true. But if you're trying to build the picture of like, oh, what are you doing with Suspiria? That's going to be different. What kind of movie are you making? You know, Netflix just announced uh, Cowboy Bebop mm -hmm. and they put out some stills. And, you know, it kind of looks like a CW show. It looks a little, um, you know, like the costumes are sort of like too accurate. And it, so it kind of builds the setting of like, oh, what's this going to be? You hear Suspiria is announced. And then when you hear Tilda Swinton's in it, you're like, oh, oh, so it might be like a Tilda Swinton is in this type horror movie. That's mm -hmm. kind of different than the suddenly that starts to carve out a lot of what you could be in this case, afraid of, mm -hmm. you know, the movie being. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot about the uh, the delivery too. And I didn't think about that in Suspiria, but yeah, that's exactly what you hit on. It's So what is the performance? Is it tonally serious? And how stylistically are they doing that? What do you think about the location of this movie or the entire sort of like backdrop of it? I mean, I think the entire movie all, both with, with how the actors are are playing their delivery and the setting and the score all have really one one core thing in mind which is see how much space i can pack into this frame you yeah. know it's it's a lot of wide shots it's a lot of rooms with very little furniture it's a lot of minimalism both on, on all three fronts uh there's there's so much pregnant breathing room in between lines mm -hmm. and responding to other people's lines. Um, and so, yeah, I think the setting, the actual place, the building 
it's like a vast vacuum where the thing it just feels there's like this it's like a space movie or something i think that yeah. about like alien yeah you know you once you get on the ship like how much of that work is done when you just see the ship right you know here it's like 70s and you know we see the fucking wall and then you get in i think they shot it in a hotel or the building mm-hmm. if i remember right the building's pretty fucking run down but just like the molding the decor sure you know you feel like that is a very 3d real environment you could move through but not one you know we recognize it at least in the united states right. or maybe even from the time we live in well and it feels all of that like vacuum in in the building and in the sets it creates this sort of undercurrent that all of the things you're watching, all of the human interactions that are maybe the focus of the scenes you're experiencing are pretty small compared to what's actually going on. You yeah. know, and, and that's that's why that's why the only room in the entire movie that feels like it's full is the one at the end. Yeah, which is a remarkably different feeling than mm-hmm. the rest of the movie. You know, and they actually thinking about that, they play with really fucked up frame rates and a lot of um, the sort of things that you would see more typically from decades ago than you do. Even when we saw that in uh, Chunking Express, we were sort of like, oh, weird, Mm -hmm. weird 90s effect. But of course, you know, you have that before as well. It's interesting that you pick up on a lot of the camera stuff talking about like how wide everything is and mm-hmm. I do think there is a there's like a, a interesting depth to this. You know, it uses a lot of deep focus, which was one of the first things that I thought, "Oh, this is weird," right? Because when we started shooting, like you look back at like we did this double feature movie. I tried to keep things as shallow as possible mm-hmm. because the look of film in my mind that I wasn't getting on home cameras was depth of field (laughs) exactly it's like subject is crisp background is bokeh soft and in my mind because of the you know the time that i came into that dslr era i associate shallow depth of field with filmic Mm -hmm. so that's like a a quick go-to but you watch this and so much of it is in deep focus which is a lot more common in older movies where every fucking thing from front to back of the room is in focus. And it definitely, the the other, you know, not just the wide shots, but like, things like um, the snap zooms that we see in a lot of the mm-hmm. throwback movies. That's a very, like, I think that one reads to an audience really easy. The crew on this movie was really obsessive about only using camera movements available in 77 German New Wave. Mm-hmm. So, like, no big cranes, no steady cam, right? As we as we like to call it, um, this film shot in PZE, which is the pre Zemeckis era. Well, yeah, and also just you know, your mind operates in a modern sense. So you go, oh, I want to do a shot following her up the stairs, and how the fuck do you do that if you've built this Dogma ninety five esque rule for yourself mm-hmm. to go? Um, and you know what they did on this movie is they constructed an elaborate system of pulleys to get the camera like up and around the stairs to follow her, which is uh, is super creative and just reads different than you know a steady cam would. Even though you see mm-hmm. that on movies like The Shining, which I think is also 
you know, it's a lot closer to this year, but you weren't seeing it in the European stuff. You weren't seeing it like in German films, Fassbender films, you know, things of that nature. So we covered a lot of it. I mean, I don't have a lot to say about makeup and hair other than think about that as well, the costumes. Obviously, there are a couple very iconic pieces too. So they're not just serving, making this feel like a period accurate film. They're also kind of going, you know, look at the poster and it's like bold, mostly naked, red thread, you know, outfit. Right. Speaks deeply to all of the dance related themes and really like as an icon pulls out that, oh yeah, this is going to be a weird dance horror movie. Mm-hmm. One more thing on that depth thing. It's also created by the lens choice a lot too. I was just thinking about that when we did uh, Chunking Express with Fallen Angels. You remember everything in Fallen Angels was super wide and it had that sort of, um, I feel like this was really popular in the 90s, that image of like, imagine a character pointing a gun right towards the frame with a super wide lens. Mm -hmm. And you know, you get that effect that's like the gun is fucking gigantic and then their arm seems to be 100 miles long. And so, you know, that's because it's a wide angle lens because it's, uh, you know, you use like a 14 millimeter or something, um, a very small, small number right. millimeter lens. I'm trying not to make this too like in the weeds. But my whole point is, what does that do? Why does their arm feel mile long? It's because the lens has this illusion of creating like a crazy amount of depth. So it's not just, oh, it's wide, there's more in the shot, but it also makes the rooms seem much bigger or smaller. These aren't just location choices. They're literally aesthetic choices like lens. Mm-hmm which is part of why I also think about things like music as affecting uh, mise-en-scene. Or even, you know, this is a movie that, like I saw this at the Arclight Dome and I felt really, really lucky to get to see it there because it's a fucking Amazon movie. Making a streaming movie that's meant to be like back from this period or, or this time to evoke that feeling, like nothing could do you more of a contrast than being like, and you're going to watch it by logging in with your Prime account, mm-hmm. which is not the like mental association. You probably, you know, when even, even many years after the movies was coming out, I think of like all the little facets and those kind of theaters in Chicago where I would go to see older era horror films. Mm-hmm. And I have less association with a streaming service that like crushes the grain out and, you know, it's not the, so... Mm-hmm. I think even something like the medium could make it harder for you to transport an audience back to that time. It's a it like works against your tools of immersion. Anyways, that was a, quite a bit, but a first first go at mise en scène that maybe we can return to at some point in the future. Um, Belladonna of Sadness is a it's another witch movie. We're just keeping that witch theme. Rife. We didn't even, that wasn't even something we mentioned at the top of the show. That's how buried witches are in what we were trying yeah. to talk about today. That's amazing, yeah, actually, funny. to think about. Uh, Belladonna of Sadness is, it's a movie that claims to be animated, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's it's a movie that um, when, I, when there's just this era of animated movies, the other one that I'm just going to say now so that we can just start saying it every like sixth sentence is uh, Fantastic Planet. Mm-hmm. Where it's sort of oh, who's um, hitting all the French stuff now, Michael Kessler? <laughs> um, it's it's sort of like this uh, 
it's it's a type of animation that um it died because of its uh its lack of technical prowess i think you mean the sort of watercolor no i mean like the kind of animation where you're actually just sort of sweeping over still images and it's really not i mean like it's for lack of for to to make it as as plain face as possible it's arguably animated it's stills sure, yeah. with camera movement you know there's some motion you know and it, a lot of it is done with like blending and 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 cell like fading from from one spot to the other but it's like this sort of it, it is it, to me i cannot think of a film that that makes me feel more like fucking 3am slap happy out of my fucking gourd than a movie that's animated the way Belladonna of Sadness is. But then there's the bonus of this movie is fucking insane. It is. Yeah. To the point where like, you know, we've on double feature, you know, from, from the, from the podcast host who brought you a serious look at vagina dentata. And maybe you should give another thought to cannibal Holocaust outside of it being, you know, from the studio that brought you those conversations, uh, new from template, new from template, a conversation about how this series of still images of, um, Japanese art is one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Does it hit you like a spike in your fucking eyeball, though? Yeah. Does it stab you in your heart? I mean, it needs to. Yeah, I, it's hard. Like, okay, maybe we could try and logline this one. I feel <laughs> like let's let's try to uh, yeah. gravity back to reality a little bit because it's hard with this movie. It is very surreal, but it's I don't know. Is it a triptych? It's it's a bunch of just terrible, awful rapes. Mm-hmm. And this girl who goes through a, I don't know, let's say a kind of transformation. And then, as you said, there's also some witchy stuff. Mm-hmm. So she's sort of, um, I mean, it's an entire odyssey, really. Right. The way this movie starts, it uses this kind of backwards metaphor that uh, this movie talks about taxation in the beginning. <laughs> and I am so used to people going, oh, taxation. It's like, you know, the government raping us, taking our money by force. And I think this is kind of an interesting use of a metaphor because especially as as the theme or as the movie goes on and you, you start to see what it's really talking about, this is a movie that's about this woman who's raped. Taxation's the metaphor, you know? Mm-hmm. Taxation is like further feeding into this idea that things are taken by force and setting up this kind of weird relationship between her and the emperor or or how the town interacts with her. So I think every time it's talking about taxation, this isn't a movie that's like secretly about capitalism or about taxation or about the government. It's using the things that are usually the subject of the metaphor as the fucking metaphor, mm-hmm. which is cool. You know, and that ties it into society. I think one of the other things, metaphorically, before we get to all the, the, the fucking brutalness of it, that I thought was cool, is there's this constant relationship between her and how all the people in the town act. Mm-hmm. The society's very fickle, right? It's like when she's empowered later on, when she's 
in a great mood and she has it all and she's doing magic and she, you know, she's just lovely and everybody likes her. And the whole town rallies behind her and even the emperor is like, oh my God, how does she have these charms? Why does everybody in the town love her? And then the second that that power wanes or that, you know, the emperor basically goes, you are officially no longer in favor, the whole fucking town just turns like on a heel. Mm-hmm. You know, then it's suddenly like, fuck you, it's over. You know, it's this relationship between how the town feels about her and her own self-worth. And I don't know, you know, if that's always a literal or if there's kind of a metaphorical bit of that too, which is also like, you know, like how you perceive other people perceiving you, right? Right. Like, oh, I have a lot of, uh, say I have a lot of confidence. Maybe I think the whole town loves me. Mm -hmm. And then maybe I have a moment of self-doubt. I'm looking around, I'm like, oh, this whole town wants to burn me at the stake. (laughs) But yeah, she has a character. She has this, these kind of emotions and evolutions that I thought were really honest for, you know, like I didn't really know what to expect from this movie. I'd never seen it before. And, you know, these are all... um, Phases that would be or or could be familiar to a rape survivor, right? Like Mm -hmm. Belladonna goes through anger, uh, psychological reframing, the wanting to, the wanting to look unappealing to other people. And then there's also like really, really fucking memorable scenes too. There's that scene where she's, I mean, it's all really interpretive, right? But you could interpret it as rediscovering personal sexual pleasure. Mm-hmm. You know, like after the first time we see a psychedelic rape scene. Sure. And it's pretty fucking heavy, I think. Mm-hmm. The aftermath and she's crying and the dude is, you know, sucking, <laughs> which is what he does a lot in this movie, just is the worst. There's sort of one fucking beat in it to go, okay. And then we sat around and we felt bad for a really long time and it was terrible. Mm-hmm. And then this little demon thing shows up. And tickles her, and she's kind of into it. Right. And she has this weird relationship with that thing as it kind of comes back into her life or changes shape or form. But, you know, I looked at that and I'm like, oh, after this traumatic, fucking awful thing happened to her, you know, lifelong scarring thing, this is an instance where, albeit in the movie, it's like the very next fucking scene, she's like rediscovering personal sexual pleasure. Mm-hmm. And, we see the ups and downs where she's like rebuilding a concept of herself or how she's perceived to people. So I just thought the movie was a lot more, uh, I guess, thoughtful than I expected it to really be for a film that uh, had such like a cult reputation to it. I was surprised at how fucking crazy it was for a movie that had the type of reputation it did. This is such a crazy movie too. Like the number, the number of things that become the number of things that become things that fuck things. Yeah. 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 Totally. Totally. I just, it's, I mean, it's like, um, it, the, there's this, there's this, you know, watch the movie. If you haven't, it's not super difficult to dig up. Um, and it's not super difficult to sit through. It, despite how like weird we're saying it is, it's something you've never seen before. Well, there were definitely parts that like emotionally snuck up on me, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't say like it's definitely not. Uh, you're not going to get bored watching it. I mean, there's just something. The thing that's bizarre to me about this movie is that 
Let's see if I can. This isn't a log line, but this is how I would describe it to somebody who is asking me. Mm. Imagine a 15-year-old boy's high school notebook doodles told you a poignant story about rape and sexuality. Yeah. Because I mean it's like it's it's very much like rooted in this sort of um I guess watching it as an American because it is it's not an American movie, but watching it as an American there's definitely sort of this like Asian fetishism to it. Um Oh yeah, to, well from my own kind of like novice untrained perspective, there was a part that sort of reads like you know, kind of like um like only Japan could have made this, you know what right. I mean? Like sort of that idea, right? You know, you you have to be ready to speak explicitly without fear of being tactful. Sure, you know this is a tactful movie, but I don't think you get to this movie by working in an environment where you're, you know, by being shy. Basically, sure, you have to be willing to go for it and and be read as tasteless. In order to sort of like overcome the the valley between taste and what was the word you said like um, was it transcendent or what was the <laughs> you you slipped one word in there that was funny uh, poignant oh yeah yeah <laughs> right and it's weird because like all right so I I came on here and talked about the poignant stuff but you're right I sort of buried the lead this is an insane movie yeah and it does have that sort of ring of like. Um, you know, like a, a what was that like Spike and Mike Twisted Animation Festival right. or something like that? Yeah, right? yeah. It's it's. I mean, like when you think about just it's really. I I feel like it cheapens the movie, so I'm gonna really have to like I'm gonna have to fucking pull a switch back after I say this. No, no, whatever, go for it. But like, imagine how many dicks you drew in high school on all of your notebooks for four years. Just imagine all the dicks you drew, all the things that the dicks were doing. Sometimes dicks had dicks. I mean, it's like that sheer number of adolescent phallic artistry is literally in this movie. It's like, okay, here's a guy. Just kidding. That guy's actually a penis. Just kidding. He has a penis and he's fucking himself with it. It's these things that, it's it's there's just something about it to me that I just thought was so amazing because if fucking four 15-year-old boys were sleeping over all huddled around the one fucking landline dial-up laptop slowly downloading one bitmap porn image at a time and then those conversations that they're having, which I think socially people would generally agree are probably like below the bottom of the barrel. However, they're not necessarily harmful. It's like somebody took that and gave a Todd Salon's like, look at the value of this part of society. It's insane. It's just, that's the thing that's insane to me. It's not that there's like, 28 penises flying like rockets through animated vaginas. It's that somebody went, but this is art. Well, and I think it might even be selling it short to go, oh, it's a lot of penises because there's also a lot of like, what I think is really crazy about the animation is you're not always sure what you're even looking at. You know, like there is our main character who is drawn 
beautifully over and over, drawn in a lot of different ways, and everybody in the movie is. But there's certain like there's certainly like a skilled uh, fine art kind of level of craftsmanship to it. And then there's crude drawings, and then there's stuff that kind of uh, like you would have a hard time censoring this movie scene to scene if you were trying to Instagram out the you know flag the genitalia or whatever mm-hmm. because it's I actually think the the motion is probably the stuff that feels the most explicit to me and not the obvious sort of like this is the shape of a penis. Right. But you know, you look at that first rape scene and she's kind of like raped by a fucking ink blot. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, I, I think what makes it read that way is literally the motion of it, is the way it kind of uh, just sort of thrusts and it evokes. There's a lot of times in the movie you see this where it evokes body parts and then switches to evoking the motion of those parts. But what's so genius about that artistically is this is the same thing we're always talking about with horror movies and the fucking Jaws idea. Mm -hmm. That by doing a vague shape or a weird motion where you're like, oh, should I be looking at this? Is this... It's forcing you to kind of put together what you're not seeing. You know, you're going like, okay, this ink blot represents a terrible thing that's happening to her. And this squiggle over here was her leg spreading, you know, five images ago that has kind of morphed into this elaborate shape. Um, It's it's very weird to even talk about what Mm -hmm. you're seeing in this movie. But so your mind is kind of drawing, instead of literally showing you what's happening, it gave you all the pieces. And it was up to you to imagine this terrible rape scene or multiple terrible rape scenes. And when it shows you a couple people from the town doing it, you're supposed to extrapolate and go literally every person in the town raped her. And by the end of the movie, you probably have this feeling, you know, I'd be really curious to ask somebody to recall what happened in this movie five years after they watch it. Mm -hmm. And they probably think it has way more heinous stuff than literally what you're seeing in it. Mm Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe that's that's part of its tact. Fucking crazy. Belladonna sadness. Charles Crawford, Ben Ecker, Brad Parker, and Joachim Vernon are the executive producers of this show. Patreon.com forward slash double feature. You too. There you go. Can be an executive producer. <laughs> what do we do next time? Another another entry into what will indefinitely become our pantheon of all you ever need to know or understand in all of history about um, the entire breadth of exploitation cinema and the, you know, like 18 and a half months of French <laughs> extreme cinema. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, but I do have a bonus for us this time. Okay. You can actually watch Base Moi, hey. the French film. You can actually great. see it. Isn't that exciting? That's exciting. There's a great Blu-ray that just came out from Kino Lorber. And it'll be available on a bunch of streaming platforms and stuff, I'm sure, as well. So go hunt that down. And then I'm pretty sure The Wild Angels is like in every national film registry. I'm pretty sure it's like legally free. Go to your Library of Congress yeah, and uh, <laughs> check out The Wild Angels and Baisemois. Call your senator and ask him if they can send you a copy of The Wild Angels. And if you can't watch them for whatever reason, 
Yeah, come listen to the show anyways. Yeah. We're trying something new. We're just going to... Oh, yeah, that's right. It's a show for everyone. I'm not used to not spoiling movies. Um, watch more fucking film or don't. All right, bye.